welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening session of Sunday the 12th of July 2009, entitled Humpty Dumpty, and the Bible reading is taken from Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Here's Brother Bill Jackson. We are trusting for a blessing from the Lord, which were all blessings come. Uh, before I get into the message, I want to say a bit about our Filipino work. I have been to the Philippines 18 times, and every time I go, I meet with pastors and churches, and I notice usually the pastor's library, his study, is really not having many good biblical fundamental books, because a lot of the questionable ministries, Robert Schuller. Benny Hinn, people like that, will send books free to the Philippines. Filipinos have no idea what they really are, and so they put them in the library. I don't know if they read them, but they're there, and they don't have any really good fundamental solid books. So the Lord has laid in my heart for quite a while about the need for books there, but I never really figured out how he was going to work it out. Well, this past April... There was a church in Bacala City which had its 30th anniversary coming up in April. Well, I had an anniversary in April. I was 60 years old as a Christian. And so I was talking to the pastor, and we decided we'd celebrate together. And then between, or on the way, not exactly on the way, but more or less from Bacala back to Manila to catch my flight, they had a... Uh, a church in Tupolog City, which I had been in once. And um, I don't know why out of the dozens of churches I've been in, the Lord picked that one, but that was very much on my heart. And so we arranged to have one meeting, which would just take a few hours because I had to come in by plane and go out by plane uh, six hours later. So it wasn't really a big visit, but somehow the Lord... And I don't know how this happened. I still can't figure it out. I thought it was Wednesday. No, sorry. I thought it was Thursday. And they thought it was Wednesday. And the pastor and I had a kind of argument about it. Is this Wednesday or Thursday? And finally he proved to me it was really Wednesday. And so I had an extra day there. And so we had a chance to talk about things. And one of the things was this literature depot. And the pastor said he'd be more than happy to use his premises as a place to keep the books. has a large building they're building, not finished yet, but they're working on it. And he used that, and he'll be the director. And we have another small uh, committee formed there. And now we're collecting books. And I have about 15,000 books already ready to send. And when I get home, I'm going to have to put them in boxes and send them. The Lord opened up a reasonable place because the post office used to send M bags and you could send them by surface and it was reasonably reasonable cheap. Now they have gone away from the surface M bags and just do air. And for what used to cost $65, which said it cost several hundred dollars. But someone told me there was a group that sent them over cheaper. And so, being and Scotsman at heart, I guess, I decided that I would go for the cheaper. Turned out a nice Filipino brother in Louisville, 
That's all we had to bring them to Louisville. He'll take the rest away, and it's about one-fifth of the price of what the, what the mail would be. And so we're thankful for that and thankful for um, the way the Lord is working now. The people over there are very excited about it. Other pastors have written me, said they're so glad to hear of the, the Literature Depot in, um, in um, DePaulic City, and um, uh, it's really working out well. So Lord willing... I will go to Manila on the um, 18th of November, go down to the Pollock by the 23rd of November, and stay there for six months to oversee starting this meeting and making sure it all comes up to um, uh, working really well. And so we're thanking the Lord for that, and we're praying, and we want you to pray because it's very expensive to send books from England to the Philippines, but I, I know your prayers are going to be useful because God does answer prayer. And we know that in his own time, uh, we're looking at the around the 1st of January, and his time, we'll be able to open up the depot. Some will come in, fly in and take their books. Some will be sent out to them by a reasonable um, delivery service they have. While we were singing the hymn, Beulah Land, I thought of something that happened when I was a boy. I was still in a liberal church. I hadn't gotten saved yet. I was probably eight or nine years old. And we were singing this hymn, Beulah Land. Well, I'm sure none of them knew what it meant, but they, they, they sang it anyway. By the way, the word Beulah means married. And so if you have a happy marriage, you're in Beulah Land. But if you're Right with the Lord, you're in Beulah, Beulah land, <laughs> because that's the way to be. But anyway, we were singing, we're living on the mountain underneath the cloudless lies. We're feasting, uh, we're drinking from the fountain that never will go dry. Oh, yes, I'm feasting. And I thought to him, said, I'm feasting on bananas. <laughs> and I have always loved bananas. I still do. I love eating bananas. And so I was thinking, and I, I didn't have a very loud voice, so I guess nobody heard me. But I could just see if there was a, a low, they heard pasting on bananas. <laughs> but that's one of my past problems. I have present problems. Liz Cowell wrote Alice in Wonderland and Alice with the Looking Glass. Um, very interesting stories about Alice and her dreams. But in the Alice with the Looking Glass, Alice is conversing with Humpty Dumpty, the big egg. And she's talking back and forth with him. And eventually, Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, it means what I choose it to mean. Now think about that. When I use a word, it means what I choose it to mean. That could really mess up your conversations if you don't know what it really meant. But the Catholic Church, without batting an eyelid, is using the words that we use but meaning something different by them. And so therefore, it's very important if you're doing any Catholic evangelism to know what they mean by what they say instead of thinking that what they said ties in with what you believe, which is an easy way out. 
if you're going to a Catholic home and you say, you know, the Bible says ye must be born again. And he says, well, I have been born again. Boy, that takes a load off my mind. I don't have to witness to him. But what did he mean by being born again? Several years ago, I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I was told that there was a priest in town who claimed to be a born-again priest. His name was Larry Quillacy. And he would be speaking on family radio, talking about his being a born-again priest. And some of the Christians were a bit confused and said, Bill, would you go down and talk to him and find out what he means by saying he's born again? So I went down to the rectory, very, very friendly fellow, very, really well-mannered and nice, didn't argue, didn't fight, just being real nice. So finally in the conversation, I said, now, Larry, I says, can you tell me about when you were born again? Oh, yes, he said, Bill, I was born again when I was a baby. My mother took me down to the Catholic Church. The priest poured water on my head, and that was my being born again. His holy baptism was being born again. And if you study Catholic theology, you will find that that is what they all believe, that when they are baptized as babies, or a few as adults, mostly by babies, they are born again, and so they use the word, especially since they know that you're going to talk about being born again, they want a defense mechanism against that, and that's their born-again experience. Now, remember we talked this morning about using the Egyptian's spear in killing him. Well, use the words of your Catholic to build some kind of a real confrontation. The best thing we've found to do is not to just argue, not even to argue biblically, but to ask him a few very sensible questions about his baptism. Now, Larry, when you were baptized, did you become a new creature in Christ? Did all things pass away and all things become new? He said, Bill, what do you expect? I was a baby. I, I couldn't do things. I still did bad things. Still wet my diaper once, my nappy once in a little while. God, what's that? Um, and, 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 and therefore, um, I, I really didn't expect to change. But I know that in God's sight, I changed because I was born again. Well, Larry, when you were born again, did God give you a guarantee that one day you would be in heaven? Well, no, he said, God did not give me a guarantee. I still know that I can miss it. But you were born again, and according to your theology, you were redeemed at that time. You weren't saved, because saved is a word they only use after death, although a few progressive Catholics have started using that. Generally speaking, they won't use the word saved, they use redeemed, because they'll say the price was paid, but we don't know if we're going to be one of the ones that gets the blessing from the price being saved. And so uh, Larry would have to say that um, he wasn't saved when he was baptized, but he was redeemed. Now, what do you say to him? You open the Bible. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, not a wet baby, a new creature in Christ. You see, the only difference that really happens to a Roman Catholic baby at baptism 
He comes in dry and goes out wet. And that's the only thing that really happens. The Catholic Church says that at the time you are born again, you are justified, you are converted, but then they will say you have to have many justifications, many conversions before you're sure of heaven. Now, it helps to know what he's really talking about when he says born again. When you look at biblical rebirth, it's a glorious rebirth. It happens when the Spirit of God moves upon your heart through the spoken or written Word of God. And as he moves upon your heart, the first news he tells you is bad news. You're a sinner. So it's grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace those fears relieved, John Newton wrote. And it is true. That's the best thing that can happen to any unregenerate person in the world is to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit reveals to him the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary. And as the sinner responds to that work, he might respond no. He might respond yes. But as he makes his respond, he is either lost or now wonderfully justified and saved. But that salvation came not at his behest or at his initiation. It came from God moving upon his heart through the power of the Holy Spirit and being saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves, even the faith you had, God gave it to you. And so God has done the work in being born again. The one positive thing you can know about a person if he's really saved, not does his life seem to be good. There are people out there that are better than you are. And I won't look at any particular person. They might be better than any of you. It's not being a good person. It's being regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit's power. And when we receive that regeneration, we actually become Christians. But here's Larry Quilsey and a dozen other Catholics saying, I was born again when I was baptized. Another thing they will say, you quote to them Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's pretty clear. And he smiles and says, I've been saved by grace. What do you say? Well, you try to get him to be precise. You see, they like to wander around in, in things that are very, very nebulous. And they don't really like to be straight and, and write down to the nitty-gritty about anything. But you try to get him there and try to say exactly what's entailed in your being saved by grace. Now, if he's honest, and let me show you that he might not be honest, because the Catholics have a doctrine called mental reservation, or they sometimes call it equivocation. It's mean, it means being asked a question which you deem to be impertinent, or you deem to be unjust. And because that question is impertinent or unjust, you do not have the moral responsibility to give a correct answer. 
You can lie. Because you see, your friend who gave you an unjust question doesn't deserve the right answer. And so you're not obliged to give it to him. And so sometimes when you're dealing with they might outright lie to you. And they'll have the same smile on their face. And they'll sound sincere. But they're not. But if he is willing to go to you into the uh, where the rubber meets the road on, on Saved by Grace, this is what he will say. He'll say, now we know that there are certain things we must do in order to be saved. And we know that as human beings, we are weak and can't always do them. And so God, in his mercy, gives us the grace to enable us to do the things we have to do in order to get to heaven. Now, when you look at that, that's giving glory to God. God gave us the ability to do things. But that's just another big do. Saved by grace for a Catholic is nothing like a biblical saved by grace. Now, I've wandered into the sermon on my two points, and I have much more. But let me tell you why I call this sermon Humpty Dumpty the 16th. Humpty Dumpty said, when I use a word, it means what I choose it to mean. Pope Benedict XVI, no relation to Humpty Dumpty, the same number. Pope Benedict XVI said, when Martin Luther taught that faith is required for salvation, he was exactly right. And he was also right in saying, only faith. Martin Luther might have read Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and felt led not to add to the word of God, but to emphasize the word of God by writing alone. And Catholics will always bring that up. Martin Luther changed the Bible. He wrote part of the Bible himself. He wrote alone, and it wasn't. But alone is the only word that can justify or can define God's justification. It can't be partial. For if it's partial, it wouldn't be efficacious and permanent. It would be something that you get today and get tomorrow. As one priest told us in the Southern Baptist Seminary in California, he said, everybody must have many, many conversions if he's going to get to heaven. Well, let me tell you, if your conversion your justification, your born again is real. You don't need to write alone in, but alone is already put by God in the very meaning of the text. And so when Benedict XVI said this, he said, now I want to define the word faith for you. Faith, this is his own words, faith means conforming your life to Jesus Christ. That including all the sacraments, that including all the prayers, that including all of the dues, the many dues that they have, all these things. Now, the difference between faith in the Catholic Church and faith among Christians is that we have faith in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have faith in a church, that that church teaches correct doctrine. And so their faith is not a faith that has been completed by the work of Christ, but it's a faith that they're still working on, they're still doing. 
And it's interesting how many of the things that you'll hear from your Catholic friends, you could get that idea of doing and done and fit it in perfectly. Because every biblical reference to salvation is done. Every Roman Catholic talk of salvation is due. They don't know what done means. Biblically, they have no idea of finality. It's all something that keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. Well, then you figure you got to keep going because you haven't scored much yet. But you say, well, the thing I'm thankful for as a Christian is that Jesus died for me. The Catholic will say, he died for me. In fact, if you were to put those two sentences, Jesus died for me, next to each other, they look identical. What is the difference between Catholic, Jesus died for me, and Christian, Jesus died for me? Again, you want to get your Catholic friend to explain, explain explicitly what he means by Jesus dying for him. And if he's a conservative Catholic, he will come up with this idea. He will say that all of us knew we weren't good enough to be saved. And so Jesus died for me to make it possible for me to be saved. Again, the possibilities entail the do's, the works, the things that the Catholic has to take care of. And so he says, Jesus died for me, but really all he died for was my original sin. You see, the Catholics have original sin and actual sin. You get baptized to get rid of original sin. And Jesus died to get rid of the original sin, which is what the Mormons say, because they said Jesus died only for the sins of Adam which is good news for Adam, but not much good news for us. And so they say that Jesus died for the original sin. We have to take care of the actual sin. Now, when you read any account in the Bible concerning the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, you will read it as being something that he completed and finished and did and had did not have to be added to. In fact... Mathematically, it cannot be added to. Reverend Despars in Las Vegas, Nevada, Roman Catholic priest, was preaching a sermon. He was an old man. He was retired, but he was preaching the sermon in a Catholic church. And when he got to his point, his big point, he said these words. He said, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he accomplished almost all of the work for our salvation. I would say about 90%. And I have that statement in more of my publications than you'd like to admit, because I think that's a choice statement by a Catholic priest admitting what really is true. I mean, that is true, that Jesus finished the work, almost all the work. They'll give him credit for 95 99%. But if you give credit for 99%, you still got a 1% do, which is telling you to be as infinite as Jesus is, and you can't because you're a finite human being. And so when they use that, Jesus died for me, they're only talking about original sin. 
When they say, or when you say, you're justified by faith, they will say, that's true, we're justified by faith, because our initial justification comes at the time of baptism. Well, you think you've got them there, because babies can't exercise faith. And babies, 90%, are the people that get baptized. Once in a while, an adult does, but basically speaking, the babies are getting baptized. They do not have the ability to exercise faith. And so they come to an idea of what they call proxy justification. The parents have faith for the child. It's not the child's faith, but it's the faith of the parents being given to the child, and that's how they're justified. Now, as you deal with this, first of all, you find that the only scripture they use to try to make it work is when Jesus healed the um, centurion servant at a distance and said he was doing it at a distance. But there's a difference between Jesus bringing about salvation from a distance and somebody being saved by somebody else who acts from a distance. There's no rational or biblical basis for believing justification by proxy. But that's what they do. And I had a uh, debate once with a Catholic layman and he, no matter what I said, he would came back to this fact, uh, justification by proxy. And he really seemed to believe it. Now, you never know with these apologists how much they really believe or how much they're just saying things to get off the hook. I mean, uh, sometimes they seem to say things that sound pretty, pretty good. In fact, we were talking about infallibility once. We joked this morning about the pastor not being infallible, but the Catholic priest or the Catholic pope is. And yet he spoke infallibly in 1302. He spoke infallibly in 15-something uh, when he gave forth the um, uh, something about Mary. And then again in 1854 when he talked about the um, Immaculate Conception of Mary. And then later after he was pronounced infallible in 1950. That's all he's done. And I said to the people addressing Carl, I said, Carl, can you believe that a pope who says four things in 700 years is really exercising infallibly, an infallibility? Well, he said, Bill, that's because you Protestants don't understand what infallibility is. So I said, well, would you explain it? And so he said this, and I still have to smile. He said, we know that the Pope is infallible because the church said the Pope is infallible, so we'll leave that by the side. How about a Pope who doesn't, say, make a statement that's infallible? Well, he said, we have Pope uh, Pius IX, Pope Pius X, Pope Pius XI, Pope Pius XII, Leo XIII, Leo XIV, uh, Benedict the 16th, all these popes never said anything infallible. But, he said, they kept their paper blank. They didn't say anything. And infallibility is not saying correct things. It's not saying incorrect things. And so if you leave your paper blank, then you haven't made a mistake. And that's true. And next time any of you take an exam at school, leave your paper blank. Give it to the teacher. The teacher will say, that's terrible. You'll say, there's no mistakes. Find a mistake. 
and they can't find it because you didn't write anything. And the only reason the pubs can pretend infallibility is because they rarely say anything that is supposed to be infallible. And so we have all kinds of things. Now, let me just get a few more here. One is their past salvation. Almost every knowledgeable Catholic will tell you that he has been saved. He was saved, they rather use the word redeemed, but saved when Jesus died on the cross. And then they say, we're being saved through our lives day by day, and the things that we do, God is saving us by helping us to do the right things. And then, after we die, now get this, we hope to be saved. Assurance, nowhere in Catholic theology. The whole basis of Christian salvation. You take the glorious truth of substitution. Substitution is an unknown concept in the Roman Catholic Church. And the reason it is, substitution would ruin their theology. Do you know the law of substitution? The law of substitution is when one goes in, one goes out. When I was on the court of life, trying my best to be a good little Protestant, trying to do all the things I could, and then one day I heard the glorious news that Jesus Christ had become my substitute. And when he became my substitute, he came on the field. And he told me, he said, Bill, get off the field. You have no more involvement in your own salvation. I have finished the work. Now, if the Catholic Church once said that, they destroy all their sacraments. Who's going to go to confession when the work is done? Who's going to abstain from meat on feast days when you have a work that was done? Who's going to crawl on his knees to a statue of the Virgin Mary when they know the work has been done? Who's going to do anything? No sane person, but they have to almost think that it never happened. And yet it's very plain, very plain. The just died for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, who himself bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we be dead to God, should live as the righteous, by whose stripes ye are healed. The Lord Jesus Christ taking my place. And that does not bother me. That makes me rather happy. Because, you see, I know that in me there's nothing that dwells that's going to be capable of attaining heaven. I know I might try to be the best kid in town just by never doing anything, sleeping all day. You can't do much when you're sleeping all day. But I never could attain to where we had a need to attain, which is to heaven. There was a young boy, his name was Tommy. And Tommy didn't like to wash. I wonder if any other little boys like that. His mother had to try to get him to wash his face, wash his hand before he sat down to tea. And so having had this proclamation, he decided he better wash himself. So he went to the bathroom, turned both faucets on real, hot, real loud, and swished around a bit, and then walked out to the dinner table. His mother said, Tommy, I appreciate the fact that you went there and tried, but you didn't do a very good job. 
Go in there and really, really wash yourself. What could he do? Is either wash himself or go without food? And everybody knows that for any little boy, food is more important than washing. So Tommy went in. He got the soap. I never noticed that before. That looked cool. Boy, and then he rubs it together, making suds. Boy, that, that's great stuff. And then he starts really washing himself. And looking in the mirror, he said, I cannot believe what I am seeing. I am seeing the cleanest boy I have ever seen, definitely the cleanest Tommy I have ever seen. I'm going to go back and enjoy my tea. His mother did a very naughty thing. She lifted his ear up. And there was the dirt, untouched by the facial washing. And she said, Tommy, I know that you tried, and I appreciate that. But go in there, take your shirt off, wash your whole self, including your ears and the back of your ears. Do a real good job. Tommy said, Mom, I have washed myself three times. I am now as clean as I could possibly be. I thought you would faint when you saw me this clean. I have washed myself. I am waiting for my tea. Mom said you can wait until you're blue in the face. You're not getting any more tea until you go out and wash yourself. So Tommy went out and washed himself again. But the point of the story is this. Tommy had one standard of cleanliness. As far as he was concerned, especially that second time, he was clean enough. He was clean enough to meet his standard of cleanliness. My mom had a higher standard of cleanliness, and his having his tea was according to mom's rule, not his rule. And just like that, there are many people in the world who have one standard of righteousness. What do you mean calling me a sinner? I don't rob banks. I don't kill people. I don't cheat on my wife. I'm a good person. What do you mean calling me a sinner? They have one standard of righteousness, and they meet that standard. They're as good as they think they need to be. And they cannot imagine anyone saying, you're still full of sin and unclean. But while they have this standard, God has a higher standard. And he said, no sin can enter heaven. One of the evangelists, he's with the Lord now in America, John R. Rice, had a dream one night. And he dreamt he was in heaven. And he was enjoying it. It was really great. But there came a knock on the door. Bang, can't make that bang. A knock on the door, and there's an angel there. And, oh, John said, come on, let's have a cup of tea and let's really enjoy ourselves. And the angel said, I'm not here for pleasure. I'm here on business. I want you to come down to a certain street corner here in heaven and preach a good evangelistic sermon. I understand that was what you did in life. And so come and help us by evangelizing. And as John walked to that corner, he saw a fellow coming out of a pub with a bottle, bashing another guy over the head. He saw a guy dragging his wife by the hair of her head. He saw really a lot of terrible things happen. And when he got to the corner, the angel said, okay, John, preach. And John said to the angel, you know, I like being in heaven. It's nice to be in heaven. And I appreciate you having me here. I appreciate 
all the glory that you give me. He said, but after I've seen all of this sin, this pub and dragging the hair, this is terrible. And to tell you the truth, it's no better than the earth was. And heaven would not be heaven if God allowed sin. Well, the angel said what we did, we made a mistake. An old man with a long white beard came to the gate one day and wanted to come in. And he said, I understand you have a rule here that sin cannot enter heaven. Now he said, I only have one sin. And it's not very bad, just one sin. Would you make an exception and let me in? Well, the angel said, you know, he looked like such a nice, benign old fellow, long white beard and all. We kind of thought we had to let him in. So we let him in. Next day, guy comes up knocking at the door and says, I understand yesterday you let a man in with one sin. Now, I've just got two sins. Would you let me in? Well, I guess we had to. Next day, three sin men, four sin men, five sin men, all kinds of sin men come in. And now, John, we'd like you to preach and get them all saved because we have all these unsaved people in heaven. And that's the truth of what would happen if God lowered the standards and that sin. And that's why a perfect sacrifice was needed, one that would completely take away sin, and one that would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, seal us to the day of redemption, sealed, Ephesians 1.13, by the power of the Holy Spirit. No sin can get in, no righteousness can get out. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And the work that was done is completely done, even though our Catholic friends don't understand it. And the very first time you meet them, you may end up with zero. And it may seem like it's taken too long. The question is, how long does it take to get a soul saved? Well, Noah preached for 120 years and never got one. And he knew before he started, he'd never get one. But he preached anyway. So if you get one, once in a while, praise the Lord. If you don't, Praise the Lord anyway. You did what God wanted you to do, and that's all you can do. Witness and pray and ask God to do his work and faithfully give out the word of God and answer their questions and use their arguments, and you can win Roman Catholics Christ, and that's the truth for every single Christian. God bless you.